0: So, if you'd like to turn to those passages, if you have your Bible, I'll put a lot of the passages on the screen, but if you want to follow along with us in God's Word, I, I, I highly encourage it. I, I, I believe in the Bible, so um, get one, read it. Uh, it's, it. It's a great book. Um, I'm starting a week early our Advent series. Advent is that time of year where we prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas and look forward to that celebration of Christ's first advent, his first coming, and at the same time, we prepare our hearts and say, even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come, as we look to his second advent. I, I don't know about you, but this season, even Thanksgiving and Christmas, they, they've snuck up on me. Um, you know, uh, as many of you know, Kathy's had some health issues, she's doing great, and uh, as a result, we've had some things going on in our families. We've looked out after her health, and over the last three, or three out of the last four Sundays, I haven't actually preached, you may not have noticed, uh, but uh, Scott and Gabe and then Dave stepped in for me last week as we were kind of weaving our way through this circumstance. So last weekend, I was, uh, I was talking to my son Caleb, who's here in the front row, and uh, it was Sunday. He was, he was traveling back from somewhere. All my sons have great lives. They travel everywhere and enjoy life very, very, very freely. But I was talking to Caleb, and he said, "Hey, I'll see you on Saturday." And I said, "Oh, you're coming home Saturday? Great." And I said, "Have you got a wedding, or you got a, you got like a party? You got to be, you got something? You got to be here?" He goes, "No, it's Thanksgiving. I'll be home." I'm like, "Oh, Thanksgiving! How did that get here all of a sudden?" We just even did a series on thanks, didn't we? But at times, things sneak up on us. And this is what Advent is all about, this series, this time to, to prepare our hearts and our minds to, to really celebrate what God has done in our lives. And this Advent, I started a week early because I'm doing a five-part series, and I think I'll make it clear in a minute why that is. Um, but the, the what I want to look at really is this, that Christ coming is the ultimate expression of how God takes the ruins of our lives and turns them into something spectacular that really it's the message of Christmas it's the glory of Christmas which is the greatness of the gospel the greatness that God takes your junked up life and listen some of you may be sitting here and saying I don't have a junked up life oh no you do You do. Because sin has entered your life. Sin is a part of you and as a result all that results in your best effort is ashes. But the glory of the gospel is this, that God takes the ashes of our lives and turns them to something beautiful. When I was in high school, I'm sorry Brian and Brenda Shup aren't here today. They love the Gaither vocal band and the homecoming stuff and Uh, Anyway, but when I was in high school, uh, Bill Gaither wrote this musical, and he he, he was writing a lot of gospel songs, and one of the ones he wrote, here's the verse to it, it it says this, if there were ever dreams that were lofty and noble, they were my dreams at the start. And hope for life's best were the hopes that I harbor down, down deep in my heart. But my dreams turned to ashes, my castles all crumbled. My fortune turned to loss. So I wrapped it all in the rags of life and I laid it at the cross. And then it goes in that chorus. Something beautiful. Bum, 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 bum. That's all. In every gospel song you got your bum, 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 something good. Anyway, he, he takes our lives and turns them into something glorious and beautiful. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, as we start Matthew, we have 16 verses, really, of genealogy. Now, if you're like me, when you get to genealogies, do you just start skimming? Name, 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 blah, 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 blah. You just keep, you get, you get to the genealogies in your daily Bible reading, and you're just like skimming. Well, Matthew's genealogy is uh, really something, really something special. He starts with Abraham, and he's going to go down to Jesus. And woven in Matthew's genealogy are some different names. Now, by the way, I, I love Bible study. I love looking at God's word and studying God's word. And for many people, they look at the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they say, okay... We just got Matthew, then we got a shorter repeat of Mark, and then we got a little longer repeat of Luke, and then John, he did his own thing. and But the Gospels, they're all just, you know, the story of Jesus. But really, every Gospel is very unique, and it has like a target audience, I believe. So Matthew's target audience is really the Jewish people. And so there's a lot within Matthew that if you read it carefully, you see it's targeted toward speaking to the Jews about who Jesus is. So even the genealogy, which starts at Abraham and goes down to Jesus, is a Jewish, more or less, genealogy, talking about how Jesus is descended from Abraham. Um, Luke, which is written to Gentiles, really, to everybody, to all humanity, in his he doesn't even start the gospel with a genealogy but he comes back to it and he starts at jesus and goes backwards all the way to adam to say that jesus comes from adam it's it's written for all humanity all mankind mark who is written to the romans doesn't even bother with a genealogy he just his is a gospel of action because romans the roman people were more i think a people of action. His whole gospel is just like, Jesus did this, Jesus went here, Jesus spoke this. It's a gospel of action. And John's genealogy begins with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus' divinity is emphasized. So again, in Matthew you have the Judaistic uh, framework. In Mark you have more of the Roman readership luke you have humanity and then in john you have his divinity so everyone is different and if you read them kind of through these lenses it'll help open up the gospel for you that was a side point um, but mark's uh, matthew's genealogy um, starts with jesus being the son of david being abraham's seed And here's what he says, and I'm just going to read you the first three verses. It says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Now, You see, we're already going into the genealogies. And if you don't know the backstory, you may just kind of breeze over it like, okay, great. Oh, there's a woman mentioned here whose mother was Tamar. Now, what we're going to see in Matthew's genealogy is that there are five different women mentioned. Five different women. Tamar is going to be the first. Then we're going to get to Rahab. Then... Ruth, then Bathsheba, who is not really mentioned. She's just called Uriah's wife, but she, is, she gets a spot in the list. And then finally, Mary. And so over the five, these five weeks, I want to look at these women that are listed in Matthew's genealogy because every one of them is unique. And every one of them has an ashes story, so to speak. The ashes of their life are turned into something spectacular. Now, we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 38. And we're going to look at the story of Tamar and Judah. You know, it's so so remarkable to me. We're going to jump into this story. But when you read about Jesus being from the lion of the tribe of Judah... Don't you think, oh, this Judah, he's spectacular. Judah praise Judah is this thing, great thing. And we're going to see that um, Judah, he was a jerk. He really, there's very little commendable about Judah's life up until the end. But a lot of Judah's life, you're like, how could Jesus come from Judah? He should have come from Joseph. I mean, Joseph had character. Joseph was a man of integrity. Joseph was a leader. Judah was a slime ball. This is my reading. Uh, at least for part, a good part of his life. We're going to jump into chapter 38. I'm going to read it. I'm going to comment on it. I also want to say this straight out if you're watching. There is a parental guidance warning on this sermon today. I'm just reading God's word and commenting, but this is one of those stories you're like, how did this get in here? You'll see as we go along. So uh, I, I just want to say straight out, if your kids don't know about sex, you might want to like change the channel for just for a little while, but it's here. This is the word of God. We're going to read it together. Okay. Judah, you're like, oh, gather around. Usually we say something about sex. Everybody's like, oh, let's turn into this one. Here we go. At that time, chapter 38, verses 1 and 2, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with the man of Adolam named Hira. Hira, or Hira, Hira. Then Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. This is Genesis 38, 1 and 2. Now, Genesis 38 is sandwiched in between 37 and 39. Thank you, TV. <laughs> you know, when a brother's been with you a long time, they know your humor and they know where you're headed before you do. 37, uh, 36, 37, we're talking about the story of Joseph. Remember, Joseph goes down to his meet his brothers. His father sends him with some stuff. He, he, he's got a bad rep with his brothers because the whole coat thing and the dream thing and the He's just not in good standing with his brothers. So when they see him coming, he's in such bad standing with the brothers, they throw him in a pit and intend to kill him. That's when you know your brotherly love is gone, is when they throw you in a pit and decide to kill you. Now, Reuben, if you remember, is, is saying to his brothers, don't, don't kill him yet, just throw him in the pit, just leave him there, and then he's gonna go, they're going to go away, and he's hoping he can come back and rescue his, brothers, his brother, because he... He obviously sees, it is, honestly, I don't think Reuben sees that the murder of his brother is a bad deal. He's more concerned about his dad. And eh, my dad's going to take this really hard if we kill this kid. Not the highest motive for not killing someone, right? So um, Judah sees the uh, Midianites coming along on their way down to Egypt and says, Hey, rather than kill the kid, let's make a profit. Let's sell him into slavery to these people headed down to Egypt. So Judah is the one who comes up with the idea of selling his brother for profit. As I said, Judah is not, we're going to see very, I think, very little of integrity in Judah's life for at least a long period of time. So Judah does that. They sell him. Reuben comes like, hey, where's the brother? Hey, we sold him here. Here's the, here's the profit. Let's split it around. Let's, let's kill the sheep. Throw the blood on the coat, blah, blah, blah. Joseph, it ends in chapter 37. Joseph was sold as a slave into Potiphar's house. Cut back to chapter 38, verses 1 and 2, where Judah comes back and Judah leaves his brothers and goes to dwell among the Canaanites. The Canaanites are the pagan people of the land. Now, why did Judah leave his brothers and go down to dwell among the Canaanites? I I don't know. I... In my thinking, this whole thing with Joseph has really just messed up the family. And Judah, probably out of guilt, or maybe out of guilt, or maybe just wanted to separate from his family, make a name for himself, I don't know. But instead of staying with, really, the people of God, he separates himself out and goes to live among a pagan people. And he takes... I, I, I hate to use this word, a pagan wife, but that's the term. He takes a Canaanite pagan wife, and really, it's this... You know you know, in Corinthians where it talks about don't be unequally yoked? Uh, that's really what's happened in Judah's life. He's so separated himself from the family, so separated himself from the people of God, he's just going to live as a pagan among... Now, honestly, living among the brothers who are supposed to be the people of God hasn't exactly shown itself to be strong, right? They've already tried to kill their brother, sold their brother, lied to their father. So it's not like the brothers are acting like brothers. They're acting no different than pagans, really. So at some point, Judah decides to go down, and he, he, he gets married, and he, over a period of time, has three boys. One of them, his name is Ur, another one, Onan, and another one, Shelah. Three different, three different sons with this pagan wife. Now, not only does he marry a pagan, but he gets a pagan wife for his oldest born, whose name, by the way, is Tamar, who we're going to see her name in the genealogy of Matthew. Now, Judah is so far gone that he's not only, and I hate to use the word pagan, but please don't think of it in like this really derogatory, it's just the people of God versus the people who aren't the people of God, the pagans. And so he has a pagan wife, and he gets a pagan wife for his half-pagan son, for his son, Ur. The evidence here is he is not raising him up, so to speak, in the fear of God. And Ur, it says, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Not much to know about Ur, really, other than Ur is a wicked guy. Now, we don't know what kind of wickedness Ur participated in, but it was wicked enough that the Lord killed him, right? So at some level, it wasn't good. So God kills Ur. So now Tamar is a widow. She has no husband. Now in this day and age, this is where things start to get a little complicated, and I want to say straight out, it's going to offend almost everything in our 21st century sensibilities. But in that day, there was a, there was a practice called a lever, leverite, leverate marriage, L-E-V-I-R-A-T-E, leverate marriage, which is this, that if there was a brother who married a woman and he dies, then the next brother could have sex with his brother's widow. They would have an heir and then the heir, the boy, would then be entitled to the inheritance. So inheritance, land, it was really important. It was really what made a name for you. It was really what gave you any kind of identity at all. Being a widow with no children was really a, a, it was a difficult life. You had no purpose or, I hate to say meaning in life, and, but in this day and age, really, children got inheritance, which gave them purpose and meaning. So Tamar has n- none of that. She's, they have no children, she and Ur because Ur was wicked and he dies. Tamar is left alone. So Judah says to Onan, his secondborn, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. Again, this is, I know that just your mind starts to go to your sister-in-law, brother-in-law. You're like, oh, my lands, this is horrible. But it was the practice of the day. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. I won't comment too much on this passage, but I think it does, it's worth talking about just for a second. Onan is supposed to go and have sex with Tamar. And in doing so, have a child, produce an offspring. Now, in his mind, he knows that the offspring that is going to come from this relationship is not going to be his. So picture with me, I'll probably get the numbers wrong, but the oldest son got the bulk of the inheritance, the blessing of God and the major inheritance, like half the inheritance he would receive. And then whoever was left among the siblings would get the other half. So oldest gets half, all the others get what was left, the other half. So Onan in his mind is thinking, okay, if I have a son with Tamar, that son is going to get half of the inheritance, and now I'm only going to get half of the half that's left. But if she has no son then now I'm the oldest, I'm getting the half, and then the younger brother will get what's left, he'll get half too. In other words, for us, this is a good deal. For her to have a child, bad deal for me. So he goes in, and rather than having sex with his wife, he pleasures himself, and his semen does not go into her, therefore, I told you you were going to learn about sex today. And so God kills him. God kills them as a result. Now, by the way, just a side point here. When I was in high school, uh, I remember a, a very distinct sermon uh, about, it was against masturbation. And this is the passage they used, which spoke, and you're like, I can't believe I heard that word at church this morning. But this is the passage they used to speak against pleasuring yourself or, having mas- or, or masturbating. And I, it's a whole different topic It's a whole different sermon, but this is not the passage to use to preach against that. This passage is about a man who is disobedient to what he was supposed to be doing. And he was really abusing this woman by pretending to have sex with her and using her then to pleasure himself. And not accomplishing God's purposes, so God God kills him. God takes his life. So, we have Tamar. Who, first husband, dead because he was wicked. Second husband, dead because he's not disobedient. We have a third son, which now is supposed to be the one who comes and lays with her. I I know, I told you, it's a great story. Uh, I'm waiting for the movie. And so, at any point, Judah, the father, says, okay, I've already lost two sons. And so now he's probably in his mind blaming her. The common denominator here is Tamar. I have two sons. They're both dead. must be her fault. So Judah says to her, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house so far the one innocent person I think at least the way the story portrays this whole thing is Tamar she's she's done nothing wrong really except try to live her life try to do what she's supposed to do now Judah is afraid okay I'm down two sons I only got one left go live in your father's house as a widow when Shayla grows up I'll give him to you, but no, no. Maybe out of sight, out of mind, maybe she'll, be forget, maybe she'll forget about the whole thing as time goes along. Who knows what Judah's thinking, except he's not planning on giving this son to this woman because he's already buried two sons. So in verse, um, the next verse, it says a long time passes and Judah's wife dies. And Tamar realizes Shelah has grown up and there's there's nothing going on here. Judah's not going to fulfill his obligation. Down to verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Temna. For she saw that though Shela had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. Now you're reading this thinking, I don't see what's going on really. Here's what's going on. Judah's wife's died, Sheila's grown up. Tamar realizes she's not gonna get the boy to, in order to have a son herself. So Judah is on his way from his house to the big sheep shearing festival in a neighboring town. It's a big deal. It's a big party. Everybody's gonna go party. It's like a convention. They're going to Vegas for the weekend. You know what I mean? They're going to Vegas for the weekend. So she takes off her widow's clothes she puts on a veil and some other clothes and goes and sits by the road. You're like, I don't, I don't see the point. Well, basically what's happening here is Tamar is dressing up as a temple prostitute to go sit by the road to wait for her father-in-law to come along to seduce him in order to have sex with him so that she can have a baby. Great, great story, isn't it? You're like, oh. Why would she do this? before you start throwing stones at Tamar realize that again she's trying to achieve purpose. she's also a Canaanite woman she's not she's not even of the people of God so to speak. she's never really probably been taught what God's purpose and plan is all she knows is my only purpose in life, is to have a son so that I can have an inheritance so that there is meaning to my life. There There's so many holes in this story, so to speak. I I can't even get caught up in all of them. But here's what happens. Judas saw her. He thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. By the way, you might be, how can he not know this This is his daughter-in-law? Well, remember, it's been a long time. It's been a long time since um, he's seen her. Time has passed. His wife has died. Who knows if he's even seen her in that interim period. But she's also covered and dressed in a whole different outfit. But remember, also a long time has passed. And she's still wearing widow's clothes. She's wearing clothes of mourning rather than dressing up. Now she's changed out of that and is in these clothes. And he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. So, again, they're negotiating the price on this sexual interchange. Now, there are a number of things here I could go off onto, but one of the key ones is this. She knew that if she dressed up and went and sat by the road and her father-in-law came by, there was a good chance he was going to sleep with her. I don't think this speaks well of Judah's character, that she knew how to go about this. She just went and sat by the road. He's the one who approaches her. He then, they begin to negotiate a price, and it's a goat. She says, will you send me something as a pledge until you send it? Here's the problem. Judah didn't have a goat. He's just traveling up to the sheep shearing festival, and on the way, he negotiates. He's like, I don't have any money, but what will you take until I get you the money? What will you take until I get you the goat? He says, what pledge should I give you? She says, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him, and she left. She took off, after she left, she took off her veil and put back on her widow's clothes again. I think the story is pretty self-explanatory. Negotiate a price, he's got no goat, what will you take? Uh, Why don't you just give me your cord, which is very specific, your seal, and your staff. And then when you get the goat, just send it down and I'll give you these back. She sleeps with him, she becomes pregnant, she goes home, back to her dad's house, takes off her Prostitute clothes, which I guess she had in the closet somewhere, and puts on her widow's clothes again. Judah, in the meantime, he goes on up to the sheep shearing festival. He sends the same guy back that hired guy, the friend with the goat, says, "Hey, by the way, I slept with this prostitute down at the city gate. Would you go take the goat and get my stuff back?" And so he goes. People of the city said. There's no prostitute here. There's no temple here. There's no temple prostitute. Judah thinks, hey, I'm one goat up, so to speak. And not only got to sleep with her. Ah, I lost the, it was just a cord and a staff and whatever. But I, my conscience is clear. I tried to pay. I tried to do what was right. I sent the goat. So many things I want to say, but. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she's now pregnant. Three months later, the evidence that Tamar is now pregnant is evident to all. Word gets back to Judah. She's been acting like a prostitute. I was going to say a whore. I mean, that's kind of what it's saying. And she's pregnant. Judah's response, bring her out, let's burn her. Great guy. Bring her out, let's burn her. Probably hadn't seen her in a long time, he thinks. As she was being brought out, you see where this is going, right? As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. These what? Well, so you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are? Judah recognizes them. And he says in this incredible statement, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Sheila, and he did not sleep with her again. It's a kind of you are the man kind of moment from David and uh, the prophet Nathan. This is that moment where he says, let's burn her. Now, there's so much in this story we could comment on the worth of men and women in this period of time. You know, the patristic society that it is and uh, the patriarchal society and just everything that's going on and the, the lack of worth that Tamar experiences. But she presents this evidence that she's held on to, to Judah. And in a remarkable statement, he recognizes my daughter-in-law is more righteous than I am. She is more right than me. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was given the name Zerah. The whole twin thing is, uh, and the first twin and the second twin and the busting, you know, it's the whole Jacob and Esau story in a different format. You know, technically the one who stuck his hand out first should have been the firstborn, but that's why they tied the scarlet thread, which by the way, there's a whole Thing about scarlet threads we could look at as the blood of Jesus throughout the whole Old Testament but not without getting into that the next one busts out Perez now he, here's the point of the story to me when you read Matthew and said Judah the father of Perez whose mother was Tamar it doesn't seem like this is a whole genealogy in the line of Jesus kind of story does it A Canaanite woman who had no meaning and purpose really given in her life and the ashes of her life just become more and more ashes The guy she marries who should have been a godly man from a godly heritage at least from you know Abraham Isaac and Jacob and Jacob had all these sons who are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel He's a wicked man, so wicked, God killed him. Second brother, okay, maybe I have better luck. Doesn't fulfill his obligations. He's dead. Father-in-law lies to her. She manipulates him, really, to sleep with him and has twins of whom Jesus comes from. What does this story, what an, besides being just, in some senses, fascinating... What does it say to us? I think, I think there are a couple of truths, and this is, I'm not going to stay long on these. But they are this. God works in the worst circumstances. Now, can you think of worse than this? I mean, really, if you really put yourself in the story of Tamar, I mean, how many men has Tamar been given to? Starting with Ur, then Onan, and then her father-in-law? In order to achieve this. I mean, it's it's a horrible, horrible story. Horrible manipulation of women. I mean, she is basically just thought of as the, the oven, so to speak, to birth children. That's her purpose, her meaning. It's it's a horrible story. But God uses it to do what? Accomplish his purpose. I mean, God is at work in your life to accomplish his will. Now, you may be saying to yourself, I feel abused by you even saying that. Why should my tragedy be used to accomplish God's purpose? Because there is glory in God's purpose. Where where are you getting meaning from your life? What's giving you purpose, so to speak? Where are you getting it from? You may say, well, my purpose is this. I, I I want to get a good education. I want to become this person, so that I can accomplish great things. Let me let me say to you that that all is good, and I think God has given you things to do, but ultimately the purposes of God, which are eternal, matter more than the purposes that you may have that you may seem bring glory. Now you're saying, well, wait a minute, still, this seems like a mixed-up situation that tragedy is turning into purpose. But let me just say to you, God uses brokenness in order to accomplish his purposes so that his glory will be manifest on the earth. Think of it like this. What bigger tragedy could there be than an innocent man being put to death in the most horrific way possible? But that's the cross. His purposes are accomplished through Jesus' willing sacrifice on the cross in order that the ashes of our life could be flipped. Also, I want to say this. Don't judge Tamar too quickly. She was coming at it from a specific worldview that you and I have trouble getting our heads around. And I don't want to preach about what's called situational ethics. Like this may be right here and this may be right wrong here. I mean, it's hard to justify a woman dressing up as a prostitute and going by and sitting by the side of the road and seducing her father-in-law. There's very little ethical glory in this story except that she has a totally different worldview and situation that we don't know about. But how would you act? And for instance, all of us would say, okay, we want to obey the law. We're law-abiding citizens. But how would you respond in a situation where people are being terribly murdered simply because of their birth and as a result, you hide them in your house to keep them safe from the officials so that you're lying to the authorities in order to save people's lives. And yet in the story of Anne Frank, in much of the stories of the Freedom Trail, slavery, we have these stories of people breaking the law in order to save people's... I mean, we could go on and on and on. But what I want us to see is this, that in the brokenness of your life, God's purposes may be being accomplished, I would say are being accomplished, if we give every moment of our lives to him. God's doing something beautiful from the ashes of your life. And I know that if you're in one of those burning periods, where ashes are being scattered around you, you're like, I don't see how anything good can come of this. I don't see how the ashes of my children's lives, something good, I don't see how the ashes of a broken relationship, I don't see how the ashes of a work lost, I don't see how the ashes of my own habitual behavior that's causing tragedy, I don't see how those ashes can bring great things, but... That's, to me, the message of the glory of the gospel is that God can bring something beautiful out of the ashes of your life. Just hang on. God is working in the worst of circumstances to also transform our characters. I don't really know what happens to Tamar after this story. It's hard to know what happens, but she does receive the inheritance that was promised, the sons. And I think in some way, something occurs in her life, but so much so, so much so that we're going to look at Ruth in a couple of sermons from now. And these women... After Ruth's story kind of unfolds and she gets married again, at the end of her story, so to speak, as she's getting married to Boaz, I'm not giving away the story. I think you already know the story of Ruth and Boaz if you go to church very often. But these women come to her and they say, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Wait a minute. They're now using Tamar as a blessing to others. It's unbelievable to me how God is using this incredible story years later in the story of Ruth to bless her to say, may your offspring be like Tamar's offspring. Out of this horrible situation, God's purposes are accomplished Her character is transformed. And though this isn't the story of Judah, I think there's something transformational that happens in his life as well. Because sandwiched between 37 and 39 is this chapter on Judah in 38. You've got Joseph being sold into slavery. You've got Joseph's character in 39. It it so contrasts with Judah. Judah is known by his own daughter-in-law to be a guy who goes to prostitutes So she just, she lines up with that. Joseph in 39, he stands against a powerful woman who's trying to seduce him, Potiphar's wife, to the point he's willing to be thrown in jail, which then leads to God's purposes being accomplished in his life. But really this story, honestly, I think is more about the contrast between Judah and Joseph than it is about Tamar. But Tamar to me stands as really the righteous figure in this chapter. And then... At the end, you remember the whole story as it unfolds in this uh, Joseph rises to power. He becomes the second most powerful man in all the planet. There's a famine in the land. His brothers are forced to go from Canaan down to Egypt to get grain. The whole story unfolds out of a couple of times and he, Joseph says his brothers don't recognize him. I'm going a little fast here because I think you know the story. His brothers don't recognize him and He sends him back with grain, but he says, hey, next time you got to bring, if you want more grain, you got to bring your brother Benjamin, who is his full brother, not his half brother like they are. Bring your brother Benjamin back down. I want to meet him. They bring Benjamin back down. Story unfolds. Benjamin is entrapped by a cup being left in his bag because Joseph wants him. He goes and gets Benjamin, brings him back. I'm going to hold him in prison. And Judah is the one who steps forward at this point and says, don't do it. There's something that's transformed. Judah is the guy who sold the guy who's talking to him into slavery. Judah is the guy who slept with his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute. But at this point, Judah is the one who steps forward and says, no, take me instead. Imprison me instead. This will kill our father. He wasn't too caring about his father back in Joseph's days. To me, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but when he says she is more righteous than I, I think there in this story is something that breaks when he realizes these are the depths to which I have fallen. And I think in our worst circumstances, it's at those moments that if we don't look around and blame everybody else for where we are, but take ownership for it, it's at those moments that God can transform our character. We live in in an age, in a place where our blame is put on others for our problems and our brokenness. You know, the reason this happened, the reason my kids, the reason Ur and Onan were such losers is because this Tamar woman, that was the problem. Rather than I was, I did not do a good job as a father. I was not a righteous man. I didn't live a righteous life. I didn't exemplify righteousness to my children. I didn't raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But God can transform us in the middle of our worst circumstances. As a matter of fact, I would contend that many times it's in the brokenness and the worst Where God speaks the loudest, or at least we're willing to hear, and our lives are transformed. Because where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You know, you can't out-sin grace, is what he's saying. Now, you're not supposed to try to out-sin grace. That's not the goal. But I'm just saying grace is so big that it covers our worst and moves in our lives to transform who we are. In the book of Revelation, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep? See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Rupert of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. To me, again, Unbelievable that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the reason he's from Judah is because Tamar seduced Judah because he didn't fill his obligations. And Jesus' line comes from this woman, this Canaanite pagan woman who is described as more righteous than Judah. Because I, I want you to see today that God, in the terrible events of your lives, our lives, and we all have them now or in the past, God's purposes are being accomplished, and if we'll allow him, he's in the process of transforming our character. When we sing of the goodness of God, this is what we're singing out: the glory of the gospel, the good news to transform and take terrible things and make something beautiful of the ashes of our lives. Lord, we thank you this morning, and we just pray that you would move in us and on us and accomplish your purposes. May we see in this story of Tamar how you are working in a great and mighty way. But more importantly, Lord, could we see it in our own lives that you're taking the ashes of our existence and accomplishing your purpose and transforming our character and making something beautiful out of us and out of this tragedy, if we'll allow you. Lord, I know there are people here today who are experiencing just terrible times for any number of reasons. There are people online who are watching us right now Who in their homes are just broken. Because of the events of their lives. And Lord I pray that they would see that they're not alone. That you are with them. Your your power and your glory rest upon them. And I pray that they know they're not alone because we stand with them. Holding their hands up. Lifting them up when they can't even pick themselves up. God give us. Grace and power and vision because if in this story you can accomplish your purpose in our stories we know you can as well thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ the power of the Holy Spirit that fills us and indwells us may we receive life and healing today in Jesus name amen